Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and here with me, as always, is my co-host and best friend, Patch. <laughs> Are we doing Masterpiece Theater? What is this? <laughs> this was, I was getting ready to start my hello, listeners, and I was going to try a Sean Connery accent, but oh, you just... No, 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 don't do that. Don't do so that. I decided that that probably wouldn't go over well, and it ended up being a little more subdued. Masterpiece Theater. <laughs> A little more my speed, I think. Okay, okay, there we go. That's good. Do you like my background for this episode, Patrick? I, I always like your background. I don't and know if we've mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nobody, we're not streaming, uh, at least not at the present. We were considering maybe doing that in the future. But yeah, uh, Aaron's got weekly, he updates his background on Skype with uh, the current movie that we're covering. I, I do not, because apparently when I load one up, it slows my mouse down and I can't hit the mute button when I'm, when it's appropriate. It's hard so enough you get, to get your Skype just to work normally. I don't want to seriously. I don't know what it is. And maybe my VPN, it's like, don't even answer from that guy. Maybe you know, it's just sketchy. I'll turn it off, but yeah, whatever. But well, we always for, get there for reference. My background for this episode is Sean Connery with his thumbs up. Given Nicholas oh, Cage. The oh, it up. looks like he's giving you like a half like uh, bunny. It's cause my <laughs> head was in the way. Let me duck a yeah. second. There you go. <laughs> okay. You know, sometimes anyway, Anyway, tonight we get to talk about a movie that I remember as being one of my absolute favorites as a teen, but I actually had not seen this in at least a decade before preparing for the show. It's also one from a director that, Patrick, you generally can't stand, so will one of our opinions be changing? I'm excited to find out. Thanks to the patrons voting it in for our June donor pick, we will be discussing Michael Bay's action-packed 1996 thriller, so, everyone get ready. Welcome to The Rock. Hold the phone, Aaron. Before we get started, bad Connery impressions and all, <laughs> <laughs> I want to take a second and thank all of our new patrons. Ooh, good this idea. Is some, yeah, this is something that we meant to do monthly, but have failed to do so, and apologize profusely for that. We'll make sure to acknowledge new patrons consistently on these Donor Pick episodes going forward, though. With that said, we are thrilled to have the support of these new patron, excuse me, not patron, Patreon family members. Tristan Hurd, Kevin Burnham, a.k.a. The Dapper Man. What a great nickname. Christina Peters, Teacup, and J.B. Huffman. Speaking of which, July's Donor Pick episode will have us going back to high school, as we always like to do this time of year. I guess this time of year, close to school. And we've given patrons the following choices. Mean Girls, Clueless, Can't Hardly Wait, The Duff, and She's All That. All of which I personally will say I would be glad to cover any of them. So whatever you pick, I'm going to be happy. Voting always goes from the 1st to the 10th of the month, so you can still be a part of this month's pick if you have time. Visit patreon.com slash film to see our reward tiers and subscribe. Outstanding. And actually, it's funny that you were like, you know, this time of year is perfect for high school. This is literally the one time of year, Patrick, that is not perfect <laughs> i know i know i just i keep thinking it's like it's, it's the only survival. time that's not here's what it is summer. here's what it is Aaron. it's it's this and i and i kind of take cues from my wife she'll tell me that after the fourth of july she's ready for fall 
So that's kind of what I'm thinking about. My son's school has a two month summer as opposed to like a three. It's extended school oh, that's year. That's right. So I kind of mentally get ready after Independence Day to be like, all right, let's get this uh, Arkansas hot weather away. Hopefully it's killing the coronavirus and we'll get back to what we consider normal fall weather and events. I think you just like going back to high school. I, that's true too. I fully admit that. I'm not going to apologize for that at all. Well, I'm not going to be so honest. Or, well, I am going to be honest. I'm not going to be so impartial. I'm going to tell you listeners that if you love Can't Hardly Wait, please come become a Patreon supporter right now and help me because my beloved Can't Hardly Wait is not winning yet and I need it to win. <laughs> and it's not even close enough for me to fix the vote. Even though fix, I'm the guy that the I'm not saying I've ever vote, done that, <laughs> not saying I've ever fixed the vote, but I'm just saying that if anybody could, it would be me. And I need, I need help. I need help. So can't hardly wait fans. Please come become a Patreon as little as $1 a month and help me out. You do need help. <laughs> All right, Patrick. Well, let's get into our conversation about the rock and we will start with the good old one word takeaways. I'm going to let you go first. <laughs> Your one more takeaway, a laugh? That's interesting. That's new. Well, that's that's pretty much how I felt most of the way through this movie. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, let me tell you, the word I picked was bombastic, and I put emphasis on, quote, bomb in my, in my notes because of the fact that it's quintessential Michael Bay. What I'm realizing, Aaron, and I, I don't think I've seen this since its theatrical release, so this is not one of my favorites. What I've seen is that this is kind of pushing the Michael Bay that I don't like as much further on as opposed to something like Armageddon, which feels more restrained. But there are elements in here that still feel great. Like this is a full on action movie. If you want to define the action movie, it's this. One of the other words I was thinking about was nonstop, and it is one word because it's hyphenated. So I'm going to not include that because I've already picked it. I'm not going to cheat. But I will say that was a second choice for me because I really felt like most of this movie was just I couldn't catch my breath. Sometimes it was good because I like feeling that way. Other times I felt like I needed a reprieve. And that's a critique that I have, a criticism that I have of Michael Bay is that he has trouble knowing when to stop or slow down. But that being said, this is a movie that left me smiling more than anything. I had a great time watching it. I was watching it with my wife, and it seemed like every few minutes I was like, <laughs> that was funny. Or, oh gosh, look, it's Nick Cage being Nick Cage. That's great, because I can't get enough of Nick Cage. And I think that for me, it's okay to enjoy these movies it's okay for me to appreciate what they are because i didn't expect anything huge armageddon was a surprise to me i really enjoy that movie on multiple levels the rock i think is a less balanced michael bay movie but more restrained than kind of his future stuff that i really don't enjoy so overall this is okay for me this is pretty good all right, I'm willing to accept that and move forward with this podcast episode. Can we still be friends? Can we, we can. Friends? We can. Okay. Uh, I I unabashedly love this movie, and I I'm just now realizing that I wrote down family on my one word takeaway as a joke when I made my notes, and I totally <laughs> forgot to go back and pick a real one. So my bad. I'm not prepared. Uh, 
you know, I love nonstop. I love bombastic. I, I like the pun there, and it's really accurate. Both of those words are. I, I'm actually going to go with something <laughs> that isn't a word. I'm going to call this one, my one word takeaway is, this is baytastic, okay? Baytastic, okay. Here's the thing. Michael Bay's first three films were Bad Boys, The Rock, and Armageddon. Those three, that trifecta, defined for me the modern day, or what, not the modern day, I guess, because today's modern day, but it defined for me as a teenager what an action blockbuster should be, because that was our formative years. That was when we were in high school, literally, growing up, and there is much of the dialogue in this film. I love it. I absolutely remember almost every single line, can quote every single line. I was giggling at a certain line during the movie that Sean Connery says about a prom queen and remembering how many times I used to quote that and actually was reminded how far I've come as a person because I immediately was like, man, that doesn't hold up like that. That line of thinking is very misogynistic and it's not something I would support. Right. And it, and it really, it took me back because, and I'm, we're not going to get into this in the podcast necessarily, but or, hey, this is the podcast. We're not going to get into the main section here, but what I wanted to say is like, it's, it reminds me of this culture around this action world of like what it means to be masculine. Right. And in, in, in that quote summed it up because what Connery is saying, he's like, losers whine, winners go home and have sex with the prom queen. Right. And when you kind of strip that away and you look at that in a modern context and everything that's happened with the Me Too movement and understanding what kind of sexual harassment and abuse has happened over the years, you start to think, man, that's not something to be encouraged by. That's not something to be proud of. And I really was conflicted. So I found myself having this like internal moment, Patrick, where I was like, I love that line. Like as a movie line, it is so classic, so iconic. And then it was like, but... I don't want my son to ever say that, you know? And so it was an interesting experience for me going through that. But my point being, back to my main thing here, is that for me, these three movies are this one, again, Armageddon and Bad Boys, really are where Michael Bay was amazing. And I think for for me, what he they are restrained to a big time level comparatively to where action became overwhelmingly the focus of his films. This movie has some great action moments and it has some big bombs and explosions like all of his films do, but there's so much more there for me. This is like a perfect mixture of action comedy, a little bit of heart and emotion that great score, I believe it's Hans Zimmer scoring this, yeah, which was it's a, shocking. it's a co-production. Yeah, it, totally it, him shocking. and somebody else, yeah. Um, and all these aspects, right, that kind of get my blood boiling, the things that I want from a blockbuster. And and I miss this kind of movie, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has movie stars. That's the thing. It has movie stars. Yeah. Like, this is the kind of movie that The Rock, pun intended, I guess, but like Dwayne the, jo- Dwayne the Johnson, who, <laughs> whoops, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, this is the kind of movie he tries to bring back and he has not been a hundred percent successful in doing so yet, but, but he's the guy that fits this kind of mold really well. And so anyway, I, it's baytastic. Like this is to me right in the heart of when Michael Bay was amazing. 
and when he's at his best. And I absolutely adore this one. Well, I think this movie really articulates a sense of excitement that he has as a filmmaker. And when you bring what I would consider an all-star cast to the table and you take a guy like Ed Harris and you make him a villain, that's pretty impressive. Because, again, I don't remember much about this movie, but I remember Krisha asking me as we were watching, she goes, who's the bad guy in this? I said, I don't remember. And then to find out it's, it's Ed Harris was pretty phenomenal. The line that you spoke of and how it wouldn't necessarily play today, I'm not going to excuse that or justify it, but I think in a lot of ways what Michael Bay does as a director, as a filmmaker in general, is he reminds me a lot of a stand-up comic in that he occupies this space for two hours that he is unapologetic about what he puts on the screen, for better or for worse. And when you watch a movie like The Rock or Bad Boys and you hear lines that today would be like, that's offensive, I think Michael Bay today or in the early to mid-90s would say, who cares? It's a movie. And in part, Aaron, I'm kind of inclined to agree with him because while movies have power and what you put out there does make you partially responsible as a filmmaker, at the end of the day, it's on screen and it's a story. And we can make that argument for biopics, particularly for like Rocket Man. You can make the argument that none of that happened. But because of the way it was packaged, it was more believable for it to be a fantasy or a different way to tell a story. And so you're inclined to kind of believe that same thing with The Greatest Showman. We had that conversation and I said, look, if I wanted to hear the story of P.T. Barnum, I wouldn't put it in a musical because a musical articulates something different. And I think that's what Michael Bay does well is he basically says, screw you. This is the movie I'm going to make and I'm not going to apologize for it. And I agree. I think Bad Boys and Armageddon are are fantastic. This one didn't hit me quite so well. But I would agree that it consistently is in line with those two movies. And, and I think you're right. It is more restrained than what we see today. I still think it's a little long in a lot of places. There didn't seem to be places for me to breathe. And for instance, as we're going through the Fast and the Furious movies, I think this is what those movies do well is they give us big action. Sometimes it's too long, but they also have reprieves that are probably 10 to 15 minutes to allow us to catch our breaths hear a line or two and really kind of find balance. And Michael Bay does action really well. And I think this movie is one of his best balanced action movies, even if it's still unbalanced for my taste. That's fair. I, I, I do think that it's definitely in service of this particular film. This film is meant to be nonstop. We are on a ticking clock and he is articulating that through the pace of the movie. I would agree. And so I, I like that personally, but I, I understand where you're coming from and I can totally get how you would feel that way. If you want those moments, right? You're not going to get them. And, and so that can be off putting for me. I don't want those moments in this movie. You know what I mean? I actually would, would be distracted by them, which is interesting. Sure. You know, it's just how we take the end of the movie. One yeah. thing that I will add on real quick to the, the conversation since I brought it up in this section and we're not really spoiling anything yet. So why not? It, regarding the quote that I use is the other point, and it goes in line with what you were you were getting at, is characters in movies are characters in movies, and not all characters in movies are going to be good people. There are murderers in movies, and that's okay, because we're telling stories. So what 
we don't necessarily need to cancel Sean Connery because of his line. It's something to take in, to be aware of, to evaluate why you feel a certain way when you hear it. And that's where the learning can take place. And it's fine for that to happen. You know, like the one issue I sort of take is that Sean Connery in this movie is definitely he is a bad guy. So we were never told like he's the perfect model that we should aspire to be. But he's also really super cool. And that's made clear. And so for him to spout something like that, it comes off as you want to be like this cool guy. He's trying to teach this dopey guy good speed how to be. It's also kind of got this really interesting meta aspect when you consider the fact that he could technically just be playing a really old James Bond in this movie. And you think about the misogynistic history of that series and how he treats women. Anyway, that, it could go any million different directions. That's just one freaking line. But that being said, let's get into this uh, in the proper way. Uh, this is your spoiler warning, folks. We are now going to dive into this uh, wholeheartedly and talk about the plot and all the nice little twists and turns that come with that. So if you haven't seen The Rock, I urge you to go out and check it out because it's wonderful. And Patrick doesn't hate it. <laughs> and that is an endorsement in my opinion. So plot, the primary plot of the movie is centered around General Frank Hummel, played by Ed Harris, shockingly at first, and his use of fear to try and get government acknowledgement for dead soldiers and reparations for their families. He is upset because he has led Marines in combat going back into Vietnam. He was a war hero and all the way up until the Persian Gulf. And he has experienced multiple incidents of his men being left behind enemy lines because they were special forces. They were killed by their own bombs or left to die and not rescued. And then they were never acknowledged by the government. They didn't receive a military burial. Their their families never got any SGLI, which is a service members group life insurance, essentially, um, from them, their deaths, because they're just off the record, right? No one knows what happened. And he's fed up at this point with this happening. It's actually a really noble cause that he's fighting for. And of course, his methods, Patrick, are to steal, break into a military base and steal these VX gas, nerve gas, essentially sarin gas, rockets, and take over Alcatraz and point them at San Francisco and say, I want money to be distributed. I think he says a hundred million is what his demand is, and he wants 80, 80 so million of that to go to the families, and then he's like, the other 20 million is for myself and his team, I'm sure. And his intention is to bring awareness to this problem. Very clearly. It's interesting to me because the film is simultaneously trying to sell us that the missiles are a real threat. But I see, and maybe it's because I've seen it a bunch of times, but I've seen, I see multiple hints throughout this film, starting at the very beginning, honestly, that Hummel's desire is not actually to harm innocents, which is kind of a conflict in this idea that he's threatening these missiles. So I wondered for you, how do you think that the movie sets that up and did it work for you? Do you buy the threat or does it kind of cause a problem for you in taking it seriously? Well, I could take it seriously in that I understand the motive behind what he's doing. 
you could write him off as an angry ex-military guy who feels unjustly appreciated. But the fact that he is fighting for those that he commanded as opposed to trying to get it for himself, I think makes him more empathetic because he's not doing it for himself. He's doing it for those that came before him, those that fought and died under his watch. And I admit that I needed the conversation between him and the folks at the FBI and the other military folks to kind of explain to me what was going on because we jump right in to this thing. We see him mourning the loss of his wife and then we see them stealing this gas and we have like almost like the zombie moment where this guy takes in the gas and then turns into like this blob, which I thought was pretty hysterical and weird at the same time. But I was like, okay, don't mess with the green balls. Okay. That's the rule. And I knew that early on and I knew not to mess with those the rest of the movie. I was like, those are dangerous. But as far as believability, I think in the context of this movie, absolutely. And what you see in the first probably 30, 45 minutes is how much respect he has. Like you see guys saying how high when he says jump. He's not having to convince these folks. And these folks are not the people that are representing the families. This is a team that believes in what he's doing. They believe in his leadership. So that combined with the description of him being as decorated as he was puts him in a position for me to believe that he has history, he has authority, and he has the ability to lead a team. And I think it's pretty amazing that he uses a tourist attraction to do it. And as a character, I've seen, well, as an actor, I've seen Ed Harris in so many different kind of leadership roles. And I don't know that he's ever been in one that hasn't been leadership. Maybe Stepmom as the as the I, I I know I've seen a lot of movies, some more than others. But anyway, most of the time, though, we see him in a in a military role, in some kind of leadership role. He was in The Right Stuff, played John Glenn. He was in The Abyss. And with Michael Bean with a mustache, I miss the mustache, by the way. That was just weird seeing Michael Bean. I miss the mustache, too. I love Michael Bean, and I love I him in this movie, but I miss the mustache. It's like he just doesn't feel like the real Michael Bean without that thing. But as as a character, to see him exhibit that kind of authority and then to kind of make him come across as a bad guy, but a bad guy with a genuine motive, that was appealing to me. And it made him really interesting. He didn't just feel like a villain. He felt really more like an anti-hero. Good. I'm really glad because I think that that's the intention here. And so for me, I was really blown away this time by the movie's opening. I think Michael Bay does such a phenomenal job at this. And this is where a lot of blockbusters are not as good, especially modern day disaster movies. They try to set it up and they just don't know how to nail this kind of opening. This movie opens with a funeral of Marines and then you have Ed Harris's character getting ready in the background, putting on his Marine dress uniform. You don't know what's happening, but you hear this audio of the operation that went south. So 
I think that this is incredible storytelling because you're using the radio in the background of the scene to inform the audience about what this man is upset about. What is what is taking place in this scene instead of just somebody sitting there and talking and explaining it in dialogue. And so we know, okay, we can put two and two together. He's going to a funeral for these people, which is not necessarily he's going to a funeral for those people. But it makes sense, the imagery that we're seeing. And he ends up going to his wife's grave. It's raining. He's put flowers down. He leaves his medal. I don't know if it was a Purple Heart. I couldn't tell if it was a Purple Heart or like a Medal of Honor, but it was very must, very much a, a high honor of some sort. Well, he had multiple multiple Purple Hearts. So he could have given one up. It's fine. <laughs> Keep the <laughs> <Sorry>. rest. <laughs> he says, it has to stop. I tried everything, and I still don't have their attention. Let's hope this elevates their thinking. But whatever happens, please don't think less of me. So immediately, I like care about him, right? And I start to believe in him. Also, I just love the dialogue. I, I can't say enough about how well it's written. And that comes from a military perspective. But the way he talks, this line, Patrick, delivered by Ed Harris, let's hope this elevates their thinking. I mean, he says things like this throughout the movie that just give me chills. And I have been around generals and admirals and people who have this sort of charismatic demeanor and that demands respect just from the way they carry themselves this guy nails it perfectly it's amazing and like you said he gets them you get to see that amazing scene too where he is talking to them his crew i think it's right before alcatraz um i think it's i don't remember if it's before alcatraz or before they break in but he says he gives a speech he says we'll be branded as traitors the gravest capital crime punishable by death a couple hundred years ago, a few guys named Washington, Jefferson, and Adams were branded as traitors by the British, and now they're called patriots. In time, so shall we. God willing, in less than 48 hours, we will evacuate this island in gunships under the cover of hostages and VX gas warheads. Your destination a non-extradition treaty country, you will each be paid a fee of $1 million for services rendered, but you can never set foot on your native soil. Can you live with that? Yes, sir! You know, and a resounding yes, sir. But this is that storytelling. This is where those pieces started kick kicking in for me, Patrick, that I think is so brilliant in the way that we see them. Because here he says, God willing, in less than 48 hours, we evacuate under the cover of hostages and the VX gas warheads. He's telling you right then and there, like he doesn't want to do this. Like this is all based on the hopes that the threat is successful. In the moment when I'm watching the scene, I'm not focusing in on that line of dialogue that hard. But in retrospect, I'm like, wow, he told us right there. The other part is when they take, they overtake the base to actually get the warheads and they do it completely non-lethal. That's a very important thing because he cares about those men. Those men are just soldiers doing their jobs. Why would he murder them? He's fighting for soldiers, right? And he does this throughout the film. He shows this respect and not a desire. And, I, and so I love it. And I think it's great. And the, the biggest piece that I think probably helps me not ever lose heart, not heart, not ever lose, I guess, the belief that something could happen is because these captains that are with him, Darrow, and I can't remember the other one, one's played by Tony Todd, Captain... It's Captain Darrow and now Captain 
Hendrix, maybe. No, Hendrix is McGinley. <laughs> John C. McGinley, which is a hilarious casting, uh, because it's hard to see him in this role, honestly. Like, he's good, but like, all you see is the guy from Scrubs, and you're just like, yeah, that's not, that's not, <laughs> it's not him. Uh, Fry, I think, is the other guy, but the two captains who are clearly not part of the general's normal squad, these are oper- uh, special ops guys who've been brought in for this. You can tell that they are constantly challenging him, and they are gleefully taking joy out of the situation. And so you kind of worry, like, hey, man, what if they what if they take it too far? And so I always wonder, not if General Hummel's going to take it too far, but if they're going to cause a problem. And of course they do. Um, anyway, so I also see a parallel between Mason and his story and what Hummel is fighting for. Because, in a way, Hummel is fighting against the government using men and women as tools to serve a purpose and throwing them away and forgetting about them. And that is exactly what has happened with Mason. Did that inform any bit of the movie for you at all? It did. And when I look at that, I think that Hummel is less frustrated at the fact that they're being used because as employees at our respective jobs we're being used we are being compensated for that monetarily with benefits and things like that that's what i think hummel's issue with this is is that they were thrown away they weren't even given the proper recognition i think is what he said i don't remember the exact words but that was his major beef and the fact that he's using the words like reparations, wow. I mean, if that doesn't trigger BLM stuff right now, I don't know what does. Because that is a common human thing that when we feel like we are slaves more than servants, we want to be compensated. We want to be recognized. We want some kind of either monetary recognition or verbal recognition. And I think that Mason's perspective is similar to that. He has just chosen to sort of live in it and expect the fact that he's got to play by their rules and he's going to be demanding when he can. One of my favorite scenes with Connery is when he's being interrogated and the dialogue between him and eventually um, eventually Cage's back and forth is he wants that hotel. He wants that suite. And part of you is thinking, well, yeah, you've been in prison for this long. You get this suite. But then we see what he does. And really, it's a means to an end. So we see a guy who I think is a lot like Toretto, who is playing the system, who says, okay, if these are the rules we're playing by, which are really rules that change all the time, I'm going to go ahead and adapt to them as well. But I think both he and Hummel are similar in that they want retribution. They want compensation. One is just going at it in an, well, they're both going at it in illegal ways, but one's doing it kind of from inside the job and one's doing it from outside the job with Hummel and Mason respectively. Yeah, that's exactly what I see too. And and for me, it elevates the film in a big way because it takes it beyond just that typical action blockbuster then i think this is where i start to get that heart feeling and that actual genuine buy-in 
to this. I love that you bring up the comparison because to me, it, that's exactly what it brought up is the BLM movement and this force um, right now that wants a reckoning to abusive police behavior to stop. And when you try everything you can or you feel like you've tried everything you can legally to do things in the right channels and nothing changes and you're still being hurt or you're still not receiving care, you're being thrown away and, and disregarded, what other means do you have to take but to do something drastic or to do something illegal, right? And I think that's where we see real humans struggle with over and over and over across history. And so it's it's awesome to see it kind of paralleled here. And... I love that you called Hummel an anti-hero because you can say that about both of these guys. And it makes for a really intriguing watch because you're you're seeing two anti-heroes essentially going against each other. You know, they're both – Mason just wants to get out of there. You know, he just wants to be free. He wants a right. life with his daughter. But that's something we can root for. And I think that that's so critical too is watching that scene where he does get out of the hotel – and he goes through this amazing, like James Bond esque stuff that he does with the cord, and you and this, and you realize like what's the whole purpose of it? The purpose of it is to see his daughter for five seconds, whatever he can get. You know what I mean? And you're like, dang, okay. But they're not gonna let him do that if he just asks to do that, right? And if you look at that, it even extends to good speed because he's not someone who is trained to do what he ends up doing. And it's played for laughs. You know, he's sitting there on the plane. Is it the plane? On the vehicle. I can't remember what he's on. Is he on a ship? It's on a, it's on a helicopter. Okay. Thank you. Sorry. I couldn't remember what the vehicle was, but three weeks of weapons training, Patrick. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) This is where I would be. I would be good speed in this case. I would like, what am I on? Am I on a plane or, or what is this? Wow. But, but even he's being used in that way. He is going to go in to do his science stuff. And what's in it for him? Oh, death and destruction, risk. Mm-hmm. And the fact that now he has something to lose as well, his girlfriend slash fiance slash I don't know if I want this or not, girl, whatever, coming to San Francisco. And he's like, I need to get a hold of her. I think that that whole idea of being used and not being taken care of is something that Bay is kind of threading through this whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it connects to Armageddon a lot as well. Some of these themes go right down the center of that movie as well. Yeah. Well, the premise itself is interesting and unique. And, you know, you're using a tourist site as a base with hostages. And I wondered, did you find the way that the military and FBI operations work throughout the film to be believable or to border on not realistic and how did that affect your enjoyment of the film well first of all let me just say that i love john spencer in this and listeners if you need to know aaron asked me (laughs) if leo mcgarry worked as an fbi director before he became the white house (laughs) chief of staff or after and i said clearly you have not seen the west wing to be able to answer that question i'm only like a season deep yeah okay so i will tell you this and it's not really a spoiler or anything but this is pre leo mcgarry white house chief of staff i did find it ironic though that he was sitting next to the white house chief of staff i know 
And, who gets and reamed thinking, in a wonderful scene by Harris. And I'm going, Leo McGarry would not take that crap from Hummel. He would fire right back because that's Leo McGarry. Anyway, what I loved about this was seeing not the I would call it nonchalant, but I think it's really more matter of fact dialogue that's taking place. The military guys that Hummel is talking to normally when you see a terrorist or someone who's playing that kind of terrorist role like Hummel is making his demands. People are looking at him like, we don't negotiate with terrorists, and you got these military guys. No. In this case, Hummel, his respect is being pushed through that television, and you see guys being like, all right, Hummel, that's cool. You know, We'll work on that. We'll get you what you need. Even if they're lying through their teeth, it's military guys talking to military guys. I don't know if that's realistic because I've not been in the military, but I found it really appealing to not see – something stereotypical of like here's a terrorist military people are trying to talk to him in this kind of one-sided way no they're talking to him as if they know him because what they do know him the conversation afterwards when he says i know what your counter terrorist maneuver is i forget what it's called and then they're asked about it it's really great to see how the military side looks at this as being both a threat but also a very familiar threat they understand who he is not enough to necessarily go in and make the best decisions but to respect him enough to say we can't do what we would normally do if we go into let's say desert storm we go into vietnam or we go into korea whatever these are our own and we have to value them so for me, I don't know that I could say it's realistic, but I would say for the purposes of this story, it was really good. Yeah, it, you know, the demeanor of the military personnel we see in here is consistent with most special forces, Marines, soldiers, and Navy that I've seen. And I do really appreciate how in that scene that you're talking about, like when he, when Humble calls and dresses down the chief of staff. Um, says, get this guy off, get this clown off the phone. I'm not talking to this guy. And the other guy in the room, he responds, he's like, yes, general. And even FBI, you know, director Womack, he even says when he's talking to him, general, blah, blah, blah. Like they address him as general. And of course, David Morse, who plays the other captain Baxter, uh, Baxter, who is his like right hand man. Clearly somebody who's worked with him before. By the way, I'm on tangent. David Morse. Love this guy. I, there's not enough with him. He was kind of like in several movies that I really liked in the 90s for some reason, or the late 80s and 90s, and he just kind of, I don't know, he disappeared. But like, there's a movie that I've always loved. It actually was a miniseries. And I need to rewatch it, Patrick, because for 20 years, I've remembered this so fondly. And I need to see if it holds up. It was a four-hour miniseries called The Brotherhood of the Rose. And David Morse is one of twin orphan brothers who get taken in by an assassin and, and made into assassins, Romulus and Remus. And one of them ends up having to hunt the other one. And it, it was fantastic. I just remember it so fondly. And that's what I always think of with David Morse for some reason. And so, so it came back to me big time when watching this movie. My point is... Back to that level of respect and always calling him general. 
these are definitely the way people act. And I'm going to point more towards this when we talk about my connecting point, because I think it is also something that really signifies like the realism to me of how this might go down this situation. There is also the maybe more unrealistic side of the movie, which is this idea that Mason's British SAS character has been imprisoned because he stole the state microfilm secrets that house the, you know, truth about Roswell and the aliens and the JFK assassination and all of the conspiracy theories that we may have. And the idea here, and it actually is a fun way to do this, I think, is that, you know, we held him without, you know, trial because he hid this microfilm and we didn't know where it was and we couldn't afford to let that get out. That seems to me like something we would do as a country, whether the microfilm exists or not, like the microfilm itself, like kind of the conspiracy theory nature of it aside, like if America ever felt the threat of something like this, I feel like this is something that high level government operations would do. Maybe I'm just, that's because I've seen a lot of movies where it happens, but I don't know. But I just wondered how the plot point of that and kind of the, the driving force for Mason's story worked for you. I, it was kind of distracting. Honestly, I think there was enough here that I didn't need that. I think that to me, that was a hint into <laughs> national treasure book of secrets. Like if we're going to connect universes, I think hundred percent, hundred percent agree like coming back going, you know what? I remember this from Dude, several years ago, <laughs> that final scene, to, yeah. especially because he's yeah. running out of the church with the leg of the freaking pew and falling. <laughs> and I'm like, they're going, they're going on a treasure hunt that they're yeah. going from here on out. That's where they're going is to get the book of secrets or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. He left his government job doing this chemical stuff and now he's a treasure hunter. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I, this is probably the one part of the film that I don't love its inclusion. It doesn't bother me. I think if anything, I'm glad that again, we go back to that word restraint. I feel like Michael Bay had enough restraint not to make it a huge plot point throughout the film. You know, it's given as a backstory. He comes back to it for a fun little coda ending, but he doesn't make it this big thing throughout the movie of like, where's the microfilm? Where's the microfilm? You know, and all this stuff. It's kind of like a joke. And I and I appreciate that because if it had been more than that, it would have definitely distracted me. Well, Nicolas Cage in this movie, I think everybody's perfectly cast for the record, but he is... A rock star. This is this is his sweet spot time frame. I, I don't care what anybody says. The Rock, Con Air, like Gone in 60 Seconds. Give me these movies. I will eat them up. I love them all. This one, he's a wimpy but cocky chemical biologist. Stanley Goodspeed. I Just his name alone is like, come on, man. Stanley Stanley. First of all, his name's Stanley. Like no one, no one cool is named Stanley. And then Goodspeed, right? It's like, I don't know. I just love the naming convention here. But it is a memorable role for me. And I wanted to know, like, it, this is fueled by the kind of buddy cop, but kind of a lot of friction between the two, you know, playfulness with him and Sean Connery. Do you think that 
his over the top personality and his relationship with Sean Connery are there to, do you think they kept us more invested or more entertained? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they did both really well, more entertained than invested for me. And the thing is, Nick Cage is what you see is what you get. A lot of times I think it's unfair for us to look at actors and think, oh, because they don't have range, they're not quality. I think when you put Nick Cage in a role like this, similar to that, like Gone in 60 Seconds, where you have a guy who can be suave, but pretty eccentric too, that caters to his strengths as an actor. Because I don't think he does well when he's subdued. I think that his facial expressions, the way he looks, I think it just merits a more bombastic kind of character. And when you pair him next to Sean Connery, the very first James Bond, it does something pretty incredible. Something that you learn in a writing class, or something that I've learned in my writing classes, is that one of the great things to do when you write is to pair opposites. And I think Michael Bay, whether or not he created, I don't know who created these characters, if it was him or if it was the writers or whoever, but when you pair these two together, you play with their idiosyncrasies with each other. They're almost like a married couple, like the odd couple. I mean, it's that same kind of thing. And to watch them kind of size each other up, especially in that interrogation room, Mason knows that Goodspeed is not a seasoned field agent, but he lets him do his thing. And as the movie progresses, I don't necessarily think there's like a brotherhood between the two of them, but I think there's more of an understanding because both of them realize that they're being put in a position that they didn't choose by a group of people that they don't technically work for. And they have that common ground that allow them to work together as a team. And you have that interrogation room as one bookend of their interaction and the equal opposite is the <laughs> room where Goodspeed is trying to take out the guidance chips and his eccentricness comes out and you see this look on Mason's face where he's like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Am I, am I doing something? I mean, Sean Connery, he's, he, he looks like he's out of his element. And he is because he's not a scientist. He doesn't. I mean, these are big green balls. What's 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 happening here? And it's like this moment where now Goodspeed is the one in control. He knows what's going on. He's fully aware and knows what the dangers are. And I think in that moment, Mason kind of earns gets his he, he kind of respects him a little bit more. Goodspeed gets his respect earned by Mason and I think that kind of solidifies the relationship where they understand, you know what? We come from two opposite directions, but in this moment we understand each other and we understand what we both need from one another. And I think that that's part of the reason why Mason came back to help Goodspeed. I mean, he mentions why he said, you've got a, you've got a fiance that needs you. But at the same time, I think had it not been for that moment, Goodspeed would have been expendable to Mason, you know, dead weight at that point because he can't shoot a gun and doesn't know how to do what he does. Right. I completely agree. He's definitely not 
I guess I'm looking for the word. There's not an animosity so much between him and Goodspeed. He just disregards him as mostly useless. And he's very highly focused on one thing, which is his freedom. And so you're either in his way or you're there and part of the plan to get him there. And so you're right. I think that that it, it's really well done how they grow from these consistent moments of hilarity between the two where, you know, he points the gun at Mason and freeze FBI sucker throw down. And like, and Mason's like, take the safety off. Like, it's so dumb. You dummy. <laughs> um, and like these, and just this complete shaking his head. Like you said, I think you pointed out the perfect scene where there's like a, a respect, like, okay, this guy has value. And not only in this situation where I can't succeed without him because he has skills that are imperative to saving myself and the rest of the city, but like I see him as a person that has value and on a personal level. And it's beautiful um, to watch them kind of come together like that and for him to come back and save him is, is great, I think. Well, it's an action movie, and it's nonstop, like you said, and it's bombastic and fantastic. So there's a lot of really great, iconic moments and shots in this movie, in my opinion. We have three specific ones I kind of wanted to, to talk about. First off, I want to talk about the Humvee and the Ferrari chase. So... Do you remember having seen this before or was this kind of a surprise to you when it happened again? And how did you feel about this scene prior to this watch? I don't remember anything prior to them getting to the island, getting to Alcatraz. So did you like this scene? Because it's pretty long and it's got yeah. a lot of destruction. And I wondered, especially with us going through Fast and the Furious right now, <laughs> if you drew any parallels between what was going on. Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, this was Fast and the Furious, like a, a prequel. And because you have what I think is a Fast Five scene, a Fast Five car chase, where... Is there a car chase outside your house right now? There is. It's called the Rolling Thunder of, of Arkansas right now. Oh, my goodness. I'm not taking that out, listeners. You can, You get to hear... <laughs> So if Patrick gets hit by lightning live on air, you'll be here to witness it. <laughs> the rain is coming, too. Ooh, anyway, no, it really did feel like it was something out of one of the later Fast and Furious movies where there's a lot of destruction. There's a lot of cuts, lots of edits. And at the same time, while it was lengthy, it was very clear. I love seeing, again, when you look at these two characters the cars they are driving are polar opposite from one another you have a humvee that is destroying everything and you have this ferrari oh gosh i'm crossing myself because i hated that it got destroyed that's chasing it and i love that nick cage's character that, that goodspeed gets to drive this you got this nerdy guy who thinks he's all that in a bag of chips from a chemical weapon standpoint he's driving this thing and they're going through one of the best cities that you can have a car chase with all of its hills in San Francisco. So, yeah, I think it was pretty fantastic. I, I thought that it was over the top, but completely in line with the tone of this movie. 
Yes, I agree. And I think it sets the tone somewhat for the way that Mason is going to always be on the way on the lookout to escape because it gives it sets us up as an audience to always expect that just like later in the infiltration scene when they roll into the rock and commander anderson's like you thanks a lot you know you put us in a locked room with no doors out and he's like no i just gotta slide through here and do the timing and they immediately think he's gonna flee right this scene sets us up to believe that he is going to flee which then allows us to be both surprised along with captain anderson and the other character commander anderson the other characters when he walks in and says welcome to the rock you know what i mean and i I love the way that that is structured in the film and evokes that feeling for us but it, it is a fun scene to watch it's just mayhem and craziness and mayhem like all over again and and you know I just it's iconic for me watching that streetcar like bounce up in the air and explode and and the guy's reaction like I, he's so mad he's so mad that the streetcar got destroyed he is and then you get the random guy right the like hippie guy yeah on the street who's like dang man you just effed up your Ferrari and you get and it gives Cage the opportunity to give him you know one of his crazy Cage lines he's like it's not mine and neither is this. And then steals the motorcycle and he's like riding this little like almost like a Vespa almost barely a motorcycle. So it's a lot of fun. And I love I mentioned this earlier, but I love that it ends with that great scene, which was a connecting point contender for me where he's sitting on the bench. He gets to talk to his daughter. You know, were you afraid? And he's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm good. And all these cop cars and FBI cars pull up around him and. Goodspeed walks out there and saves him. You know, he's mad, but he understands the situation and what it might mean to him. And we get to see that. And and I just love what Mason says to his daughter after that. It's a great juxtaposition between the mayhem that he causes and the chaos he that ensues in him trying to get away. And then him saying to her, I'm not an evil man. If you can believe that, then it's a start, you know, and then boom, we're on to the rest. And so. I really like that. The second one that stands out to me is, of course, the infiltration scene, which I think is one of the best action movie moments um, in all of action movies. It just it's for me, it's so memorable. Maybe I'm partially a Navy guy here. So, you know, when we got the seals in action, the the way that this dialogue goes down in that helicopter is awesome. You get a great exchange. Commander Anderson, have you ever been in a combat situation? Goodspeed, define combat, sir. And you're just like, oh my gosh. And Commander Anderson says, Shep, who's that young guy, right? He says, an incursion underwater to retake an impregnable fortress held by an elite team of U.S. Marines in possession of 81 hostages and 15 guided rockets armed with VX poison gas. And Goodspeed just goes, oh, in that case, no, sir. (laughs) And you're just like... You're out of your depth, right? And then, and then in the helicopter, you know, with the the gun aspect and him like darn near puking. But what is awesome is watching Michael Bass, you know, the way that he gets this film shot in this moment. It's reminiscent of Black Hawk Down to me. The way that the helicopters are skimming over the water in the dark, and you've got you know the tracking going on from Alcatraz, and you're like, crap, they're too good. They're gonna catch them. And then, oh, we we lost a bird. It disappeared and 
you don't know their... What I like, Patrick, is you don't know their tactics before they happen. Sometimes movies will, again, over-dialogue themselves, and you'll have someone explaining a scene of how it's going to go down, which I think makes it a little less interesting, but we don't know what's going to happen. We just get to see them sliding down into the water, and then they take these underwater jet skis that are just one of the coolest things I've ever seen, right? And they sneak in, and they come up that that scene where they're just coming out of the pipe and out of the water, you know, with guns up, ready to go. It's awesome for me. Awesome. Yeah, I remember this scene, clearly, because I think it's accented by that line that is so iconic now. But more than anything, it allows you between their infiltration and cutting back to the other guys, you have this sense of seeing what Alcatraz was, seeing all these different pieces and parts. I mean, Alcatraz was a prison, but you're not thinking about the mess. You're not thinking about the showers. You're not thinking about that stuff. All you think about is the prison cells. And so I think that more than anything, it is, at least in some ways, kind of a, a tour of the underground part of Alcatraz. Whether or not this stuff actually existed, I have no idea. I'm not a historian in that regard. But I do think it's really neat to be able to kind of give us at least, even if it's somewhat fictitious, this kind of history of Alcatraz, these underground tunnels that existed. We get to kind of retrace the steps of this guy, of Mason, as he's going through. I love the fact that he... he he says, "If you, I, I could give you blueprints. I have, you know, I, could, I have tons of blueprints. My map's up in my head, and so now we get to see how he actually escaped, and we get to see really, a la Shawshank Redemption, that he had to go through a bunch of stuff to get out. So I think it says a lot about him that he can remember all these different things, and it's, I, I'm glad that Bay didn't do this, but at the same time, I kind of wish we had more." but it would have kind of shifted the tone a little bit that we didn't have more of these little like puzzles, like the way he gets through that compartment by kind of timing the incinerator or timing the furnace the way it does. That was kind of cool, kind of wanted more, but I knew that if we started doing that, this would turn into a different kind of movie and that's not what he was going for. I agree. And we do get one more awesome moment of that in the cells when they're laying in the two cells, Goodspeed's laying on the ground lamenting like whining as he does going oh you know you sure would be great you know the one thing i can't figure out you know you were able you were to memorize these tunnels and you did all this stuff and you were in the dark for three days but how did you get out of your cell and then it's you know the whole time we're watching the montage cut of mason using this makeshift towel or you know a bed sheet and thing to like swing over and open the gate and then it's just perfect he opens the gate and you're just like oh and it's like, that's the other great moment that I think really shows us just how brilliant. I mean, we see it often throughout the, but we also see at the beginning with the cord and calling for room service to distract the guards. Like he plans it all out. I think that that's a strength of the film is to really sell us on. If you're going to tell us this guy is the top SAS operative and a major threat and that he broke out of two maximum security prisons, we need to see it to believe it and it does that perfectly in all those situations so the other big action sequence is i don't know i just wrote down minecart attack i don't know how to define it but like <laughs> they're running through the tunnels and there's this incredible minecart sequence and this is where 
Goodspeed gets in on the action and actually has to kill some guys. Did you have fun with that one? Fun, yes. Was it necessary? I don't think so. It was really something out of Indiana Jones, which is fine. And ironically, Sean Connery in this scene kind of makes me think, oh, was this Henry Jones doing his thing before Indiana got his what? No, he didn't. But you could give and take with me. I, I don't really... It wasn't as memorable. It's fun to see, but I could have done without it. Okay. You know what? I could see this shortened up. So if we were going to be real picky and want to cut something to make the movie just a little bit closer to like exactly two hours or so, this is the scene that I think goes on a little bit longer than necessary. Um, It is absolutely in service of weeding out some of the remaining bad guys so that we only have the big players to deal with, of course. But it does go a little, it becomes a little repetitive as we go through. Like, it's fun at first when you watch the mine car flying down the thing and then going off the track, but then it sort of happens again, and it does go on just a little bit too long. But I like seeing John C. McGinley caught on fire and then pushed off uh, and drowned via mine cart. That was kind of fun. That's always a good time right there, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, I wondered if you have a connecting point because we're going to go into that and i'm not sure i know that sometimes on movies like this we don't always have one so did you have a connecting point that you would like to share to be truthful no i did not i had an almost one but it wasn't enough to push it to connecting point status so i'll mention it and it's the moment when we're we're having the big shootout in the in the bathrooms in the showers that area forget what it's called the just the common shower area it's just a line and hummel is just yelling hold your fire hold your fire and you know to go back to what you talked about earlier it humanized him for me it reminded me that this isn't what he wanted and yeah but it wasn't enough to push me quite to connecting point status so yeah great well mine actually i'm gonna wait because there's something i wanted to say about my second one there's something i is because i meant to mention this earlier when we were talking but i didn't really call it out but there's there's always it's always cool in a movie like this and this era especially we think back to like independence day when a movie president gets to make a speech and in this one, the presidential moment kind of, we don't even, I don't even know who's playing the president. It's like a, he's a silhouette in this movie, but it comes towards the end when they think that there's one rocket left to be fired and Hummel's already done his fake fire of the one rocket towards the stadium and knocked it out to sea. And the president is talking about like whether or not to authorize action and the bombing of Alcatraz, knowing what's on the island. And I just, I really like what he says here. He says, how does one weigh human life? One million civilians against hostages. And in the middle, Frank Hummel, that we have ignored, abandoned, or marginalized. A great soldier like Frank Hummel. And that American boys have paid for that neglect in blood is equally real and equally tragic. We are at war with terror. 
Fighting a war means casualties. This is the worst call I've ever had to make. Airstrike approved. And I just, I love that. I think it is really succinct. It's borderline, like it, it toes the line and doesn't go over it into like over-dramatization and cheesiness. And it hits on a very real point that this is a hard call. Like there would never be an easy way to make this decision and to know what to do. And you just have to hope you're doing the right thing. And you and acknowledging along the way that Hummel is right. We did make mistakes, but we can't allow this to happen because that's not going to solve anything either. You know what I mean? And so I really like that line. Um, but my connecting point is actually, you mentioned it. So, um, it is undoubtedly a connecting point for me, um, in a huge way. And that, and it starts really, it's really the entirety of that scene, both before and after, because it starts with a really cool tech moment, which I always love in movies. I get this mission impossible feeling when they're using this fiber optic cable to come up in the manhole and they find this motion sensor and they do this really cool technique. He talks about using a mirror to cut the beam and then move the prism. And we are watching from two different perspectives. We're watching from the Navy SEALs perspective and understanding that in their minds, they have solved this problem and they are really smart. But we're also cutting and watching from the control room and Hummel's perspective and simultaneously realizing that, uh oh, they know they're there. And he sends people to that room. And I can tell you, of course, I've seen it dozens of times. I get chills. I get nervous because I know what's coming. And it kills me every single time. The SEALs come out of that hole. And immediately, all the Marines up top, just boom, guns on the on the edge. And you're like, oh, crap. Like, they're completely cornered. They're completely stuck. And what I love is the dialogue here and Michael Bean and just the whole way this takes place is so emotional for me. He says, sir, we know why you're out here. God knows I agree with you. But like you, I swore an oath to defend this country against all enemies, foreign, sir, and domestic. General, we've spilled the same blood in the same mud. And you know, gosh darn well, I can't give that order. Because Hummel is screaming at him to put down his weapons. And he keeps going. He says, you men following the general, you're under oath as United States Marines. Have you forgotten that? We all have shipmates we remember. Some of them were shit on and pissed on by the Pentagon. But that doesn't give you the right to mute. And it just builds and builds into this crescendo of Hummel screaming, give them the order, lower their weapons. And him saying, I will not give that order over and over and over. And as a viewer, you're so locked into this moment and you know what's going to happen. And this is a powerful thing in action movies when you are fully aware it's about to go bad and south and it's, it's going to hurt. But it doesn't happen instantaneously, so it gives you time to, like, fear it and know it's coming. I don't know. There's something about that, man. And it just, it, it sucks. Um, 
and hearing him scream, I will not give that order. It, it really is an incredible thing. You know, the rock gets knocked off, which is kind of ironic on accident, the piece of the wall. And of course, that's the thing. Nobody actually fired a shot to start this thing, Patrick. It's an accident. And everybody opens fire. Hummel, the whole time, can't be heard, but he is screaming, ceasefire, ceasefire, ceasefire. He doesn't want this, man. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want this. And, you know, Shep, the young kid, wants to go up there. And we see this all the time in movies like this, but, like, he wants to be with his unit. And to the point of he's going to go up there and get himself shot and killed, which is what happens in order to do so because he wants he's he's got to do the right thing. And that's what these men are all about. And for me, it's like I'm not a patriot, but I was in the Navy. And when I see people who are this loyal and this devoted to that cause, um, it sucks. It, it sucks watching this happen. And it is tragic. Um, and it's, you know, juxtaposed with Hummel coming down, talking to the SEAL commander for a split second. And we really, I think in that moment, we understand the difference of who we we're dealing with because Hummel closes the eyes of commander Anderson respectfully, whereas captain Darrow has been gleefully smiling as he shoots down and murders these so-called brothers in arms, right? And Hummel gets that camera that goes into the FBI war room or whatever and looks straight into it and says, you made a terrible mistake and more of our brothers have died in vain. Damn you for forcing me into this position. And it's just, it's, it's awful. It's like, you realize in that moment, you know, this is the last thing he wanted. He's fighting to avoid this for special forces. And yet we've come full circle and it, it, it's, the situation's created more of it. Um, and so, yeah, for me, it's like a no brainer hands down. Like it's, it really is a powerful scene for me. It really is. And I think it is shot really well from a technical standpoint. There are a couple of times when I remember watching it and seeing how the guys on the ground are really hold up in the like the arc of the showers and so it's it's framed really well because we see this overwhelming group of military guys on top these guys can't get out and you're right you know it's going to end badly it's just a matter of who's going to be killed and to see that everybody save two that we're not even in the fight are going are down and uh, it's it's awful yeah it's a great moment well that'll do it for this edition of feeling film if you are a part of our patreon family you should be seeing some bonus content in your feed so check that out for the rest of you come back in a few days as we continue our furious summer with your boy colby mac as we discuss furious six fast and furious six i think this one's called fast and furious six Okay, I was going to say Fast 6. In any, in any case, it's the one that we'll be covering. It's the one with the big runway. So you, you know what we're talking about. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, my friend. And we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show 
grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.